The scripture reading today is from Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see everybody out today. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers and supporting staff for all of our fathers. And we know it takes a whole lot of supporting staff to be a father. All right. Probably notice we're in a different seating arrangement. So um, some of you are probably thrilled, some of you are probably bummed. That's what happens when you have 150 people. But we, we got chairs for a reason so we can be, we can, you know, as I put it, call audibles. Um, have multiple formations depending on what we see when we look at the defense. So um, we're going to do this for a little bit. Maybe uh, some of you are tired of looking at the back of speakers. We try to keep the Lord's Supper table though relatively in the middle so that we can, you know, physically evoke what we believe uh, theologically, biblically, that this is a meal, a communion, a sharing. We really don't want to look at the back of somebody's head as much as we can avoid that because no other meal on earth would you do that. We don't have any evidence that that's how they did it at the Passover or the, or the Lord's Supper. Um, so we're trying to sort of keep this relatively in the middle, but uh, we'll, we'll try this for a while and see how, how we like this, and we can, you know, we can always change to, to whatever uh, kind of seating range. We're, we're, the more important thing is that you're here today, and we appreciate that very much, and hope you, you understand how sincerely we mean that, especially if you're visiting with us. I want to talk to you about honoring our fathers today, uh, and I want to use the time today really to do that mainly, and that is to, uh, to honor Fathers, to show appreciation. I hope my sermon can be seen largely as a, a statement of appreciation for biblical fatherhood. And I hope we'll all be encouraged to express gratitude and appreciation to all the fathers in our lives, near and far, whether they're in this congregation or in some other state or, or whatever. David and I were talking the other day and he said, you know, often it seems like in church, Mother's Day sermons seem to honor the mothers, but Father's Day sermons tend to beat up on the fathers. And our guests, me and David, being men, and most, you know, hearing men preach uh, for many years in our life is that when it comes to preaching a sermon on Father's Day, you feel like you're going like this if you don't beat up on yourself. But I don't want to do that today. So I, I want us to, uh, I, I don't want to beat up anybody. I want to, I want to sincerely express appreciation to all the fathers in this church who, who appreciate the grave responsibility of rearing children and, and that grows out of their, their knowledge that, that children have been entrusted to them by none other than God himself. There are a lot of essential roles and traits that fathers bring to this blessing of parenting. I want to single out four of those today. The first of which is provision. Fathers are providers. And God sees this as extremely important. We may take this one for granted because it's probably the one of the four that is most, at least likely to be ignored, probably, at least in a lot of circles. And so sometimes we may forget that this is actually something that God enjoins upon fathers. He expects us to provide for especially those in our own household. And there are plenty of biblical examples of fathers in the Bible, people trying to serve God and glorify God and live out of the love of God, who even extend their households to help people you know, include people outside and, and, and take care of their needs as well. Uh, Job comes to mind. He you know, protests to God how he had done that for so, oft, so many times in his life. 
But basically, we're talking about responsibility, physical responsibility for those in our households as fathers. Paul writes, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He's essentially saying this is a form of atheism. It's worse than an infidel, infidel, unfaithful, a person who lacks faith. God sees you even if you're coming to church and you, you can intellectually affirm your belief in God and all, say all the right you know, things and answer all the questions the right way doctrinally. He says you're an unbeliever, essentially, if you're not doing something as basic as providing for the physical needs of, uh, of your family. So I, I know that our fathers, they work hard and long to do this. And I, and I want you to know that uh, we appreciate that. That does not go unnoticed. I, I read a little story about a man named uh, Juan Rocha. And uh, Juan Rocha was, or is, he's like 30-something years old now, lives in Texas. He's a public administrator. And he works in an organization that helps young people in, in urban, impoverished urban areas uh, to go to college. And he's helped an awful lot of young people go to college who don't, they're sort of underrepresented where they, in their districts where they live and they don't have the financial means and maybe don't have parentage that would send them in that direction. And he, it's an organization designed to do that and he's helped untold number of people to do that in his role as public administrator. He's got a couple of siblings in his family uh, who were, uh, one of them's an MD, another is a school teacher, just a very accomplished group of people. Here's the thing though, the thing is, Juan Rocha's father, a man named Herminio Rocha, and his mother Juanita did not spend their younger years enjoying any, a life anything like that. In fact, they immigrated from Mexico in 1959 and with a fourth grade education, the equivalent of a fourth grade education, his father, uh, Herminio, worked uh, basically in, in fruit and vegetable fields in California, Arizona, and they ultimately ended up in San Antonio, Texas. Made about a dollar a day for decades and was able to not only support his family, but through this backbreaking work for year after year, decade after decade, sent his kids to a, a totally different future than he had, you know, for himself. And, you know, our stories might not be that dramatic. Some of them might be close to that. But every father in here and every father in our lives who have, who have taken time, you know, blood, sweat, and tears to, to bring uh, bread to the table and to keep the lights on, um, that is a godly thing to do. And it doesn't go unnoticed. Something else that's arguably even more crucial then making a living for our families is teaching the family how to live. And that brings up our second point here. Guidance. Direction. It's one thing to make a living. It's another thing to teach the family and to keep the family oriented toward what's worth living for. Are, are we really just here to consume things? Like these cells, the cells that make up Monty Hampton, are supposed to consume other cells from other organisms, plant or animal or whatever, consume oxygen, molecules go in, I do that for about 80 years, in a best case scenario, maybe less, and then I become molecules too. Is that it? A lot of people believe, material, philosophical materialists believe that. Presumably you're here today because you don't believe that, you believe there's a little more going on than that, there's another destiny that's possible beyond the grave, or at least you're curious about that. And we welcome you if you're just curious about that. We're happy you're here either way. But for believers, for Christians, 
we know that we're living for something. And so we're, we're talking here about the role of the Father in shepherding or leading or guiding our children and, and our, our entire family from where they are to where they need to go. From where they are to where they need to go. Now, obviously, one of the things that's, that, that's involved in that is, is a knowledge of the destination, right? A knowledge of, uh, there's got to be some standard, if we're talking about guiding or directing, according to what? According to what ethical or moral standard? According to what truth claim? Um, if we're going somewhere, if we're taking them somewhere, pointing them in a certain direction, what is that destination? So there's got to be, first of all, a knowledge of that. I mean, if you, if you hail a taxi in a city or, or, or you know, get your Uber app out and you call up an Uber and they show up and you get in the car and you say, I'd like to go you know, to destination X and they take off and you notice after about 30 minutes you, you're seeing some of the same places again and 45 minutes goes by and an hour goes by and they drop you off at a random place. Say, thank you. You're like, I, I, we were supposed to go to this destination. And if, if they just drove around for a while and dropped you off at, you know, at a different place than you were expecting, I think we'd see that as a problem. They're not much of a guide if they don't take us to the place that we need to go. And I think sometimes parents end up doing something like that. Fathers can, can be like that. Uh, they, may, they may have the kids along on a really comfortable ride, the, the, their time at home, you know, from birth to 18 or 20 or whatever it is, you know, is, is very comfortable. Nice car they're in. Maybe it's interesting. They see cool things along the way. But nobody in the household has a clue where they're going or why they're there. And we're called to something more than that as biblical fathers. In Deuteronomy um, 6, we read in the Word of God, Hear, O Israel. This is considered the central text of Judaism, often called the golden text of Judaism. Everything else grows out of this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a statement of monotheism, which would have been so different from their pagan neighbors who had, you know, hosts of gods for this and that and the other. And basically they were just part of material creation, essentially, that if you didn't tick them off, they might bless your crop or your whatever, your war. This is saying a, a, a radically different thing. And it's the basis of the whole Judeo-Christian worldview that there is just one God. He created everything. Everything else is matter that he made. And, corollary to that, we're supposed to have a response to him. And that response is highlighted in red in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You're, you're here to give your entire being in loving devotion to this God. God, somebody might say, why? Where, where does this God you know, get off asking us to just revere him all the time? Here's the thing. Here's the claim the Bible makes that, that we believe to be true, not just based on other biblical texts, but a lot of life experience. The reason for this request that we love God with our whole being is really answered in the rest of the Old Testament and then in the person of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament. They flesh out an answer to the question, why are we to love this God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind? And basically the answer is that God has created us to be his image bearers. He thinks that highly of you. We're supposed to be little reflections of God out in the world, the world that he also has created, a world which he intended for shalom. The Old Testament word is shalom, well-being, 
thriving in every relationship that we have, whether it's with the environment, with other people, inside ourselves, psychologically, whatever it is, we were, it's built for human thriving. And yet something else has happened. This world has been warped by sin because always dangling out before human beings are these pipe dreams of human autonomy. And we choose autonomy over shalom almost every time. That, that's our bent. And God doesn't just leave us there because it's a train wreck from the Garden of Eden on, and you can just read the news. It's still a train wreck. And only by reconciling ourselves to God can we and the world realize the blessings that God has intended. And so when God says, I want you to love me and revere me, what he's basically saying is I want you to help yourself. The glory of God and the well-being of humanity are one and the same thing. He's not just going, hey, I'm really cool and I'm an egotist, so please worship me. He knows that he created us, and he's the only one who really has a clue what's good for us. So to honor God's glory, right, is to seek your own shalom. The New Testament word will be peace. That's why when Jesus is born, remember what the angels say to the shepherds? Peace on earth and goodwill to men. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Glory to God, shalom to earth. They go together in the person of Jesus. All right. So the central goal isn't just to raise up kids to be financially successful or to do really well in college or, you know, uh, be, be socially well-connected or respected. The goal is, as you see in verse 7 in Deuteronomy 6, to teach them diligently. Teach what? The words that he just spoken, that there's one God. He's the hub of the universe, and we're to love him with our whole being. And he says, fathers, teach your children this, these words, teach it diligently. So that's why we're here as fathers. We're to be guides. We're to be uh, people who shepherd our children toward that end. And so it's not so much to teach our kids, as is common in the modern West, how to follow their own path. It's really to teach them to follow the path of Jesus. Because guess what? Our best life is a life given away to Jesus. Now you can find that out the hard way. You can do the same thing every generation does and follow your own path and see where that goes. Or you can be a wise person and, and look at how many messes that's created and trust what the one who made you says. That's kind of what uh, we believe here to be true. And uh, if you're interested in that and, and not convinced yet, that's cool. Keep coming and let's talk about it. Let's have a Bible study. Let's, let's, let's get together at a coffee shop and hang out and and learn from each other. But that, that's what we are convicted of here. We believe that's what the Bible teaches. Hopefully we're teaching that faithfully this morning and always. Anyway, we, we have to know as fathers, if we're going to be guides, people who, who are leaders, we have to know what this life to which we are directing them looks like. And Deuteronomy 6 says, those words have to first be on our heart. The words have to be on my heart as a father if I'm going to be able to, to teach my children. Because I want you to notice something. If you drop down further in context of Deuteronomy 6, he says there are, other, there are other possibilities, one of which is other gods. He warns them when they finally get in the promised land that God is preparing for his people, Israel, the Israelites. And he says you get there and everything's going well. You need to be careful that you don't, as verse 14 says, go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Do we think the days of other gods are over? I don't personally know anybody who worships uh, a statue, you know, made of stone or hewn out of a tree or, you know, fashioned by some uh, coppersmith or something like that. But I know a lot of people who are idolaters. 
and I would be among them in many decisions I've made. You would be too, because you're a human being. We take things that aren't ultimate, that are created, and we elevate them to the level of the creator who is ultimate. That's idolatry, basically. And um, we need to be careful as fathers that the modern idols um, that look so normal and socially respectable in our neighborhoods uh, don't become what we're really about. So um, are you more devoted as a father to social status, career, material possessions, toys? How about this one? Your own freedom and autonomy. That's what a lot of guys, that's where the rubber meets the road. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I'm going to go fishing or golfing. I love all of you, but daddy's got to have some boy time. He's got to be 12. A lot. How dare you question, you know, that sort of thing. Daniel's been bringing this up in the study on, on male masculinity. That, that's kind of separate, that separates the boys from men in many ways. Because boys tend to think about themselves Hopefully we get that trained out of us. If we don't, we don't it, it's a lifetime proposition in Monty's case. <laughs> um, but hopefully we're, we're allowing the Lord and others in our lives to work on us and remind us that the real God is the one who defines the kind of spiritual leader and teacher we should be. So he says in Ephesians 6, 4, Paul does now, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Ephesians 6, 1, Honor your father and mother, which is what we're trying to do today. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Then he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the, the standard to which we are directing our children and ourselves. The instruction of the Lord. That's the code. That's what the Uber driver needs when you get in the car, the destination. Right? That's the map. Right? GPS, send me here. Here's your map. Boom, follow it. This is the map, the instruction of the Lord. And we're the ones that are supposed to guide them that way. Notice that instruction is linked with discipline, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And these are inextricably connected all throughout the Bible. And so, so basically parenting, he doesn't just say instruction, as if parenting is only about communicating data. Parenting is me giving you info. You know, I'm 30 and you're 5, so I, have, I know things you don't, so I'm going to give you some information. It is that, but it's more than that. It's discipline and instruction. And let me suggest to you that discipline is about creating a kind of moral infrastructure for your household. Can I put it that way? A kind of moral infrastructure, um, a system, really, in, in which habits of behavior are trained into developing children through not only teaching but consistent application of consequences. And so there's kind of a, a, if you can think of an infrastructure of a city, it's a kind of moral infrastructure that works within the confines of that household and it's expected of everybody in that household. And it involves teaching, it involves a system of, of consequences and that sort of thing. You can't just throw data out to a five-year-old and expect it to sink in. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> They've got to be trained. Discipline and instruction. Very important. And then also, one more thing about this. This is our longest point. Don't get nervous. All right. Um, like you say that every week. Old college try. One more. We'll try it again. Integrity. Not only do we have to know the destination, the standard, and teach it, 
We've got to exemplify it as fathers. And there's so many fathers in this church that do this. And I really do hope you feel appreciated today and always because that's not the easy path. It's a lot easier in the short run to do whatever you want. I'm tired. I want this. Why can't I have, don't I deserve it? You know, the devil's going to supply that logic right away. I struggle with this all the time. And we, 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 in other words, another way to put it is to say we've got to be people of integrity. We've got to hold ourselves to the same standard that we're expecting of our children as we try to rear them in the way they should go. We're subject to the standard too. And I think sometimes functionally for a lot of men in the world, the standard really isn't what God's word says or what God is trying to have human beings become in his image, be his image bearers. The standard is really something closer to that man's ego. That's a standard. That's how he leads. He leads out of a sense of entitlement to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. But for those of you who are seeking the will of God and spend time thinking about that and coming to church and learning about it or studying your Bible privately and learning about it or meeting with a, a fellow Christian over coffee and, and encouraging each other and, 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 and repenting to God in prayer when you know you've fallen short, which all of us have, I laud you, I honor you today because that is something which all of us desperately need. The will of God applied to ourselves. So Proverbs 20, verses 6 and 7. Proverbs is chock full of, of, of wise tidbits about uh, family relationships, many of, the, of which apply to fathers. Proverbs 20, verse 6 and 7 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love. Oh, you've got, you've got me, my all, I'm yours. But a faithful man, who can find? In other words, there's, there's a walk and there's a talk, and they're not always the same thing. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. All kinds of blessings are going to flow, ones you can't even imagine yet, that are going to ramify throughout the generations if you will live by integrity. And integrity doesn't mean you get to make it up. I have integrity. According to what? Again, we're back to you. You have to answer the question, what's the standard? What's the measure? What's the destination? But once you know that, and we're submitting to you it's the will of God, then that's got to be applied to yourself first and foremost. That means fathers can say things like, you know what, son? I'm sorry. Daddy made a mistake. My dad was great at that. And that makes an impression because what it says is it, it may hurt your ego a little bit when you do it. And you may be embarrassed and, you know, wish it had been otherwise, but it is. We're sinners. What it says to the child is this man holds God above himself. God's more important. God's what it's all about. And he, he too must submit to the will of God. And that, that just sends a huge signal. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Who doesn't think he's right? When's the last time you had an argument where you weren't pretty sure you were right? I mean, isn't that kind of how, the, isn't that the definition of an argument? Two people who both think they're right? Everybody thinks he's right in his own eyes, but the Lord is the one who weighs the heart. So do we allow the Lord to weigh our hearts, to put us in the crucible, and test us to see whether we are converging with the will of God or diverging from the will of God, not only in the way we lead our families, but in our own lives as well. Now, so we've talked here about guidance or direction or leadership or teaching, right? That's been our second point. I now want to bring up something that I think is in tension with that in the Scripture. It's in tension with molding kids to some immutable standard, the standard of God's Word. But it is, even though it's in tension with it, it is equally crucial and when you see a, a father like we have in this church who has this, you know how important it is, and you can see it in their children. 
And for lack of a better term, I'm going to call this empathy. And I don't want to get too technical here about, you know, sometimes you'll hear people go, well, empathy is this and sympathy is that. I'm not trying to do all that. Broadly speaking, empathy means you identifying with somebody else. It's a kind of a ability to be aware enough of other people that you can sort of, as, as much as is humanly possible, get in their shoes, see the world through their eyes, identify with them. That's what I mean by empathy, just the basic, the most basic boiled down definition. And so in the broadest sense, this means things like we identify with our children and, and their struggles. We identify. We, we, we expend effort trying to know what it feels like or remember what it feels like to be five, to be ten, to be in the wild jungle of middle school. Wow, is there a worse time? I'm sorry if you're in middle school, but it gets better. That's the good news, <laughs> right? I mean, it, this, middle school can be tough. So can high school. Um, but do we, do we try to remember what that feels like and what they're going through? Do we try to identify with them and empathize with them? Do we try to step into their shoes and uh, appreciate their particular struggle? So this would include other traits, traits like compassion. The word compassion, I know we've talked about this here, the, the Latin derivation of that word means literally to suffer with. Calm is like con in Spanish, you know, con. So, it, and passion is a suffering. So, you may not be suffering, but are you willing to step over into their shoes and feel their struggle? That's compassion, which, is, uh, the, uh, which the scripture places a high premium on. It is the turning point, the pivot point in the Good Samaritan story. That's the difference in the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite who walk by on the other side. He had, but he had compassion. He suffered with, and that makes him like his God and causes him to show neighbor love and to inherit eternal life. That's the, the, the narrative, the framework around the narrative. What was the key moment? Compassion. Empathy matters, big time. And, and, and our fathers who, who use empathy but also blend it with this teaching to an immutable standard and disciplining toward this immutable standard mixed with empathy are doing a wonderful thing. It also includes patience because, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day and neither is a human being. Um, there's a reason why we don't have, you know, uh, you know, how long is a baby rabbit with its parents? I, I don't know, five minutes? They're all over my neighborhood. Little, we were walking last night, Cookie and Tyler and me and Shree, and there's a, a zillion of those little, they look like they're the equivalent of like 10 or 12. I call them teenagers. They're like that big, cute, super cute. But they're everywhere. Why? Because they, they're going to make a lot more of them. That's just how their biology works, right? We have these human beings that are born, and it takes like forever to get them grown up. And I don't mean that any kind of disparagement. Um, some take longer than others. Um, my parents probably think that about me. But, it, but you know, we're, it's designed that way. There's a whole lot of nurturing, a whole lot of shaping. But they become, look at what we've become. We become potential world changers. So empathy is really important as well. Um, and I think this is the reason why discipline has to be exercised with caution. So we're told to discipline our children and instruct them. But look what he says in, in Ephesians 6 and also in the parallel in Colossians 3. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then in Colossians 3, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So it's possible in the name of discipline to discourage and or anger 
enrage your children. How many adult human beings are walking around sitting on powder kegs of anger? It's epidemic. And it's sad. And while we're all morally culpable, that didn't come out of nowhere. If all you do as a parent is teach and discipline and there's no relationship and no attempt, no attempt to get in their shoes and, and see what it takes for them to become what they need to be, it's slow. There's a lot of suffering and struggle and back and forth and up and down and two steps forward and one back. That's part of it. So think about these, these two points in the middle of a sermon. You're their guide and you empathize with them. You provide guidance, you provide empathy as two essential sides of a coin if you want. They're in tension, but they're both essential. So we can't make either of these two errors without causing harm to our children, and probably ourselves eventually too. And that is, we can't say, well, I don't want to discourage anybody or provoke them to anger. So I'll just empathize only. That's all. I'm just Mr. Empathy. That's all it ever is. There's no standard. I'm not directing them. They can kind of do whatever they want, but I'm with them. I'll go with them wherever they go. That's a great heart there. But it needs a little more knowledge. On the other hand, we can't just say, well, I laid down the law. I gave them consequences. They need to get their act together. That's what it's all about. Really? Was it like that for you when you were four? And seven? And eight? And 12? And 17? Now? God isn't that way with us. So empathy is essential. And even though it's intention with teaching and discipline, both of these are essential. It's not either or. We don't get to just say, well, my personality, my temperament's this, so I'll pick this one. It's not either or, it's both and. And if you don't have a temperament that can handle both, work on it. We got folks in this church who, who exemplify this really well. And um, I, I want you to know how much I appreciate that. I, I don't really know what all you do. To, to It may be really hard for you, but it's evident in so many lives that people are blending these together. And I want, I want our fathers who are exemplifying this to, to be appreciated. God assumes that we are showing a certain amount of empathy to our children. Look at Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquity. That's not essentially who God is. He doesn't look at you and go, I see a person that really discourages me and makes me angry and that I'm repelled by. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, I'm a sinner. But doesn't the incarnation say, you know, God came near, the Emmanuel, God with us? Doesn't the incarnation scream out that God doesn't move away from us, repulsed by our sins, but he looks at us as sinners and comes toward us on purpose? That's what the incarnation says. He doesn't essentially see us in our sins because of Jesus. And look at verse 13. He's just assuming that we fathers are people characterized by empathy. He's assuming that to make an illustration about his own character. He goes, you know how all y'all are real empathetic? It'd be horrible if we weren't. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Do you know your child's frame? What they're really made of? And how difficult it is to be a human being in a broken world? Especially a little human being. Empathy. You're not, you're not being soft if you're being empathetic. You're being realistic. And you're being like God. All right? But again, that doesn't mean you throw that out with you know, the bathwater to go over here and um, go to the other extreme. They're both essential. All right. 
Um, where does that come from, really briefly? And then we'll move on to our last point. Um, let me suggest that it comes from a whole lot of listening. How can I develop empathy if I don't naturally have that? The ones of us in this church who exemplify that, and there are many in this church, in my opinion, are also people who listen a lot. Being a teacher doesn't mean you don't listen. This model of a teacher as a sort of a, just a tape recorder that just, you know, spouting off whatever's in the, in the player, a CD player, right? Um, uh, I'm, I'm the information, you just listen. That, that's an incorrect model. Teachers do a whole lot of listening. They're trying to learn their audience. They're trying to connect with their audience. They're trying to build bridges. That's what communication is. Yes, it has a, 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 a data component, but it's much more than that. And if, if we want to reach our kids, if we want to provide direction in a way that they can receive it, then we need to know where they are coming from. We need to listen to them. And a lot of that comes from quality time together. And that's why Deuteronomy 6 goes ahead to say this. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them, these words, God is one, you shall love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You're going to teach that to your children diligently. How? Well, you're going to, you're going to be doing this when you sit in the house together. So you're going to spend a lot of time sitting together in the house. You're going to do it when you walk by the way. So you're walking places together all the time. And when you lie down, and when you rise, is there any part of our life that isn't captured by rising, lying down, sitting, or walking? Isn't he kind of saying all the time? What else is there? I mean, all, you're with your children. You're with your children. You're spending time. You're doing life together. And you're not just there, present, physically, but you're there emotionally. Your ear is listening. So, you know, we need to get off our cell phones sometimes. You can be with your kids and not hear them at all. Or you're just there and they're, they're just noise, whatever they say. You, you, you're the one who has truth. We will not develop empathy if we're not listening. All right, and that bring, listening brings up our, our fourth one, because when we pray to God, we're assuming He's going to be listening. And prayer is our fourth trait that I want to express appreciation for in our fathers. Because here's the, fo here's the thing, folks. At the end of the day, and this is my opinion, but I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you. At the end of the day, the number one thing fathers can do for their children isn't even something that they do, really, for themselves at least, or, or of themselves. It is, prayer is asking somebody else to do something for you. You're kind of like going, I, I, I don't have the, the wherewithal to pull this off. I know what the goal is, and I know all my failures, or at least some of them, and I feel overwhelmed. I need you to step into the world you made and help me apply the law you gave me and to become more like the Christ who died for me and my children. I, I need you to do something. So here's my, my two cents I was going to share. To young parents, parents of little ones, new parents, parents-to-be, people who don't have, have children yet, maybe some of our 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds who one day will be married and have children. The number one thing about parenting that I can personally guarantee, in my own experience, is that you will pretty rapidly come to the end of your rope in terms of knowing what to do. There's going to be a whole lot of times, and they're going to happen early and often, when you go, I, I, really, I don't know. There's not a script for this. 
I, I just quoted all the verses you can quote back to me. Yes, there is Ephesians 6. We quoted them already. I'm still saying it. Because they don't get into every single particular. The Bible doesn't work that way. It gives us principles. And sometimes we're at our wit's end, and we may talk to older people who are Christians, and they may say, you know, I, I think I'd do this, but, you know, I don't know their gray areas. You are going to be driven to your knees early and often, hopefully, and the godly fathers we have in this, this building right now, I know they are praying on behalf of their children over and over and over daily, multiple times a day, about every aspect of their, their friends, future spouses, what they're reading, what they're exposing themselves to, you know, their, their particular temperament and the challenges they're going through, which might be different from your other child's temperament, and so on. There's just a thousand things, and they just, they just multiply. And I know I sound really neurotic right now, but I think this is kind of realistic, that you, you get to where I'm I, I just going to have to lift this up to God. I'm going to give it to Him. And because God is the one who doesn't come up short. He's always got the, the, uh, the, the ability and the, and the knowledge, uh, the power and the concern to do this for us. And, and God loves our children more than we do, love them. Imagine that. Psalm 127 tells us that children are His idea. Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His, uh, his reward. And picture Jesus when the multitudes are bringing their little children to Him and setting Him on His lap. And the apostles begin to complain. You know, the disciples are saying, this is inappropriate. This is not decorous behavior. And Jesus says, no, allow the little children to come to Me because... To those kinds of beings belongs the kingdom. They're the stuff of the kingdom. That gives me a lot, of, a lot of hope that Jesus cares about my kids as much or more than I do. And I want to uh, close with an example from David. You know, uh, the class that we're doing, uh, a lot of the class anyway, is centered on David. Are the women doing David too? Okay. So at least in the men's, uh, that makes sense since David's a dude. The men's class of the, of the biblical masculinity, the case for uniqueness class that um, Randy and Daniel are, are spearheading for us and a lot of, a lot of people are participating, but um, our half uses David a lot. So I want to give a close with an example. When David is praying on behalf of Solomon, his son, who is about to become the king in David's place. David is about to pass away. He, he lifts up this prayer for his son Solomon. And here's a part of that prayer. From 1 Chronicles 29, verses 18 and 19. O Lord, the God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make your people always want to obey you. So at first he's praying for the Israelites in general. See to it that their love for you never changes. That might remind anybody of Deuteronomy 6. Love for the Lord. Then he says about his son, verse 19, Give my son Solomon the wholehearted desire to obey all your commands laws and decrees, and to do everything necessary to build this temple for which I've made these preparations. So there are two basic requests he makes of God on behalf of his son. Help him to have a heart for your will. Wholehearted desire to obey all your commands and laws and decrees. Help him to see that that's really the repository of wisdom. It's not his autonomy that he really needs. He's going to want that. We all do. That's the Garden of Eden 101. Do we want autonomy or relationship with God? and trust that we'll get all the things our autonomy, we think, would get us. That's kind of the whole ball of wax, in my view. Many in the modern West have chose autonomy. You know, if we just were free, everything would be good. Right, right. 
Second thing, though, wholehearted desire to obey your commands, and then help him to build the temple. God's house on earth. The dwelling place for God among human beings. That's what the temple is. not just about a structure. This isn't a point about construction. It's what that represents. And it's the presence of God among humans. Remember, the temple is the meeting place of heaven and earth. The most holy place, if it's a Venn diagram, that's where heaven and earth, God's abode and our abode, come together. And that's his prayer for Solomon. All right. So what we tried to do this morning is basically... Honor the fathers in this church, in this church family. Because every one of these actions we've been talking about comes out of self-sacrificial love by our fathers on behalf of their families. Whether they're you know, providing or guiding or empathizing or praying on our behalf, it comes from self-sacrificing love. But here's the thing. I want to state this too, just as, just as emphatically. I, I realize that the topic of fatherhood stirs a lot of mixed emotions for a lot of people. The picture of fatherhood that we presented this morning may not have been the experience of many people in this building right now. A lot of us have endured a lot of sadness because of our fathers. We may harbor to this day bitterness over fathers who were detached, aloof, abusive, maybe not even there. Like, father is just a blank. It's a concept you've heard about. We'd be remiss to not acknowledge that that's the case for a lot of people. And, and more than that, a lot of us have regrets personally over mistakes we've made as fathers. I know I do. Anybody heard all those points I just made and go, that's right. <laughs> you really weren't hearing it right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that to commend you because I'm wanting to appreciate you, but none of us should have the response of, I got that down, right? Because we don't, we don't. Um... And here's what's interesting to me. Even with all the failings in the category of fatherhood, even with that, we human beings can't quite seem to shake the longing for a father, can we? It's like the ghost limb that somebody's lost that they still feel. You know those stories and whatever neurologically is going on with that? You still want it and think it should be there and think it is there. Is it there? Is that it? Even though it's not there. We can't rid ourselves of this visceral, built-in longing for a father. And I want to suggest that maybe the reason we crave the acceptance of a father, the provision, the guidance, the discipline, the compassion, the affirmation and love of a father is because essentially in some ultimate sense that transcends our biological families and those experiences, whether they're good or bad, is that all of us are children. We're children who are trying to find our way home to the Heavenly Father. That's the real family we're after. All of this is the shadow. That's the substance. This is an echo of the real sound. And whether we even know God or have heard of God, think about it. Just file this away and think about it. Maybe we're just children trying to get back home. God is the ultimate Father. And any fatherhood that's exemplary in this church is because it's derivative from that father. Amen? The supreme example of all the traits that we've been talking about this morning, the ultimate expression of provision, instruction, empathy, 
All of those things come from God. He provides for us. He gives us guidance. He shapes us like a potter does clay with his instruction and discipline. He empathizes with us. He empathizes with us so much that he became one of us. David, in his prayer for Solomon, prayed that his son would both have a heart devoted to God's commandments and also build the dwelling place of God on earth. And Solomon did succeed in the latter. He built a physical temple. But did he keep all the commandments of God? Hardly. He marries hundreds of foreign women who bring in foreign gods and all the devotions that go with that. He violates half the stuff we read in Deuteronomy 6. He's not exactly exemplary in the wholehearted devotion to God's commands. But like David's son, all of us fail in similar ways. We, we disobey God. We fail to consult His will. We're apathetic and have bigger fish to fry, we think. And so we have these whole records of failure. If we're honest, our hearts are not wholly devoted to the will of God. And yet, despite our sin, God ultimately makes His temple among us. So the temple, you know, they build the second temple after they come back from Babylonian captivity. And remember the older people crying because it wasn't anything like the first one in its glory and splendor? It wasn't like Solomon's temple. Haggai talks about this. They're weeping. Some of them are joyful and they're shouting. Others are weeping and it says you couldn't discern what was crying and what was, uh, you know, exultation. Exultation, not exaltation. Joy. Because there's just a din of noise from both. And, and Haggai says, don't worry, the glory of a latter temple will be greater than the glory of the former. And then the Old Testament, the rest of it's kind of silent on this until you get to the Gospels. And what are the first words of John 1? After telling us that there was this being called the Logos, the Word who existed outside everything and made everything, and He's identified as Christ. And then we read in John 1.14 that that Logos, that Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. This is temple language. In fact, some versions say, tabernacled among us, and we beheld the glory of God. And at last, the glory of God and the shalom of humanity are reunited. And so God builds His temple among us, His children. He's trying to teach us how to replicate His ways to our families. And I appreciate all the fathers here today who try their best to do that. We'll get there because God's not going to forsake us. may not be in our time frame. Um, may not be the exact ways we expect it to work out, but let's continue to plug along, going back to God over and over and over in prayer and through uh, study of His Word and trying to be what He would have us be as fathers. Thank you, fathers of this congregation. Thank my dad. I thank all the dads here, all the dads-to-be. Go home and call your dad. Uh, it's just an important thing, and I appreciate all of the fathers here. All right. Well, we got 10 minutes before I typically quit, so I'm going to talk about some. I'm just kidding. We're going to stop at 11.50. Okay, so if we can help you in some way today, um, especially in, in a way that would involve coming to Jesus and learning more about him or, or submitting your, your life to him in, in repentance and baptism, faith, repentance, and baptism, uh, we, we were able to do that today. We have a baptistry up here. If maybe you want to talk about these things more, you're intrigued or annoyed, whatever the case is, I'd be happy to sit down and talk with you. A lot of people here would. Thank you for being here, most of all. But if we can help you in any way, come to one of these chairs up front while together we all stand and sing. When my hope and strength